Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, Typology Tribe, Ian Morgan Cron here, host of the show on which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm here with my good pal, Antonio Schinerio. <laughs> Ian, I noticed you're using an Italian accent today. I am. Yes. Yeah. You want to tell everybody why? Because I just got back from Italy. Woo-hoo! Hey, it's good to have you back in the Typology Studios. Why don't you tell us about your trip? Yeah, man. Uh, so... Annie and I and our friends Randy and Katie, yes. we went to Italy for two weeks. <laughs> and, I'm jealous. Uh, and w- I hate to say it, well, you should be. <laughs> I uh, We went to uh, Florence. We mm. went to Venice. Wow. We went to uh, Lake Como. Oh, wow. Lake Como. And we went to uh, a wonderful little place called Cortona. Mm. And I have gained... 20 pounds uh, and happy pounds though happy pounds and, and I just want to teach you a phrase that I learned which gained me those 20 pounds which which is Tell andiamo us. a mangiare which means come on let's go eat <laughs> alright give it one more time andiamo a mangiare andiamo a mangiare yeah totally alright okay totally it's fantastic <laughs> well man we had a wonderful wonderful time good yeah now let's talk about our guest Ian holy smoke we got somebody whose resume is frightening molly fletcher um wow where do you even begin she spent two decades check this out brother as one of the world's only female sports agents wow yeah she was hailed as the female jerry Maguire by cnn do you know i mean jerry Maguire, the movie remember (laughs) Totally. Tom Cruise. Right. Sports agent. Right. Oh, my gosh. So Do she's, we want to say stereotypically what his number was? Uh, we'll get we'll to that. It. We'll save it. We'll it's save it. We'll save it. She recruited and represented hundreds of sports' biggest names, including Hall of Famer pitcher John Smoltz. That is no joke. PGA Tour golfer Matt Kuchar, broadcaster Aaron Andrews, and Basketball championship coaches Tom Izzo and Doc Rivers. She is a force of nature. She is. She, check this out, negotiated over $500 million in contracts. And now um, she has a company and helping people learn about negotiations. As you can imagine, she knows something about that, right? Yeah. It's called Game Changer Negotiation Training Workshops. Wow teaching folks uh, how to close more deals faster while strengthening relationships. Close more deals faster. Do you start to get a feel about what type <laughs> we're going to be dealing with today? Oh, my gosh. All right. She's the author of four books, Fearless at Work, A Winner's Guide to Negotiating, The Business of Being the Best, and The Five Best Tools to Find Your Dream Career. Oh, the type is maybe becoming obvious to some people out there. She's also got a new book that's coming out. We're going to talk about it on the episode. We've already actually recorded this episode. And 
It's pretty intense, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Very intense. Super fun. Lots of energy. Loved her. It was really fun. <laughs> she is a force of nature. <laughs> yes. And I can't wait for everybody to hear it. So, my friends, are you ready? Here's my conversation with Molly Fletcher. Molly Fletcher, welcome to Typology. Well, it's a treat to be on, Ian. I'm, I'm excited for our time together. Well, let's start off this way. I want to know how it is that you were introduced to the Enneagram. So I was in an organization for years called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and our forum often leaned on facilitators to help us once a year sort of navigate and go deeper. And uh, we often used facilitators who, who leaned on the Enneagram. And so we would take the the Enneagram and, and, uh, and break it down a little bit as a group and together. And it helped us get to know one another better. And of course ourselves better. So that was probably 10, 12 years ago. Okay. And have you done a lot of work with it since, or was it just sort of a kind of a cursory introduction to it? I've done a little bit on and off. I've dug into it. Um, probably not as much as I should, but, um, but I have done a little bit sort of, and I, and I of course listened to your book, the road back to you, which I loved. And found that very helpful, too. So I think I'm starting a new wave of digging back into it a little bit. Mm. Can I ask you a question? Very personal question. Sure. Personal question, but people could go right on the line and, and because you're a, a, you know, a, per, a public person. How old are you? I'm 48. Just turned 48. Wow, you're looking great. Hey, <laughs> I man, wish I, I looked like that, that good at 48. <laughs> so do you think your interest in the Enneagram has something to do with being a person now entering the second half of life? You know, I'm not sure. I, th I think it's, you know, I had the pleasure of interviewing you and, and then listening to your book and now taking the assessment as a part of this conversation at some level. I think that's opening the door to it. But I, I think I'm always trying to dig in and get to know myself better so that I can be a better leader uh, and a mother, a better wife. Um, so I, I hope that it does unlock that in the second half, because I think that that's important. To, the more we know ourselves, the more we can, you know, lead better and, and continue to sort of grow. Yeah. Uh, the reason I ask that is because I find that for a lot of people, when they, let's say around the age of 40, they begin to ask a whole different set of questions than they were asking in the first half of life. Mm -hmm. So the first half of life would be questions having to do with adequacy, uh, having to do with, do I have what it takes to meet life's demands and win? Uh, do I, uh, so it's really a lot about, am I able to take the gifts that I have and leverage them to become a person in the world who uh, is successful uh, in whatever that means to different people? Uh, just mm -hmm. to to prove to prove oneself, and in the second sure. in the second half of life, I find that some people begin to move their gaze stops looking outward as and begins to look inward mm -hmm. to ask more soulish questions like who am I? Maybe some of the strategies and the goals of the first half of life have kind of broken apart a little bit, and they're starting to ask the question, "What's life all about?" You know, they're just sort of higher altitude mm -hmm. questions and that's sure do you think that has any application you know i will say i think that i went through that a little bit candidly when i 
stepped away from the agent business into the space that I'm in now because I had three daughters who were all born within about 12 months. And so it was a real life fire drill, right? I mean, we had three kids pretty quickly and I was working 24 hours a day as an agent. And I, and my girls were starting to get older. I felt like they started to need me more. I was very distracted oftentimes when I was home because my phone would ring all the time. I think that was a point in my life when I went, what am I here for? Mm. Right? Like, am I here to make a bunch of athletes and coaches a ton of money? Or am I here to make a bigger difference? And if so, what, what is that? Mm. And that was when I started to write books and sort of switch and pivot into the world that I'm in now, which I think is more, more aligned with who I really am and what my, 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 maybe my gifts are and how I can more contribute to the world. So I think I went through that a little bit at about, what would that have been, you know, uh, probably in my mid thirties, mm. early to mid thirties. Right. Now you took our IEQ nine Enneagram assessment. Yeah. Actually earlier today, actually. Yeah, I did. And, and of course you came out as a three. Yep. But of course <laughs> the audience already knows that we, Anthony and I spoke about that at the front end uh, of our conversation. When you read it, uh, was there anything in it that was a surprise or anything in it that kind of made you go, Ooh, Oh, Oh. Um, you know, I think things like, uh, being someone who cares a lot about appearance, uh, that bothers that, that sort of made me, uh, you know, to your point, uh, moving too quickly and then making mistakes that bothers me that that's a reality of my mm. world that I do that. Uh, I think the other thing might be that, that at, at, when I am not at my best, the way that it impacts other people, the way that it impacts the people really that matter most to me, my relationships, my, my family, if I'm moving too quickly or being too task oriented, too achievement oriented, I, I lose sight of, of the people that matter most. Cause I just want to keep, keep, keep crushing it. Right. Keep going. Right. Those things maybe came up for me. Right. I think everybody has this moment when they're reading their type and they're, they're, they're especially early on and they're reading it and they're a little bit like, Oh, this is a little too close to home. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it can be tough on people. But of course, that's the beginning of change, you know, is when you begin to have mm -hmm. a real live conversation with who you really are, you know, mm -hmm. uh, at least the, the strategies you've used for so long. Well, and it's funny how it shows up. I mean, for me, when I just printed and, and was reviewing my results that, you know, when I when I took your assessment and you know, I really just wanted to fire through to how, okay, so I got, I get it. Here's, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a three, I'm an achiever, but what do I do to get better? Like, how can I improve the gaps that may exist and the way that it doesn't serve me well? And, and what are the things, what are my blind spots and how do I address those? And it's, and then, so you see it in, in sort of this real time way, just in, in assessing and, you know, reviewing the results themselves. Yes. Yes. I remember when I first read my uh, my type sort of uh, as a four and it, it was, you know, kind of described what the four was like. I swear to God, I just wanted to crawl under my bed <laughs> and, and because I was like, oh, I feel incredibly naked right now. It, it's like <laughs> I don't want anyone to know this about me. But of course, as you know, as you probably know, everybody kind of already knew. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, apparently I was the only one who had trouble spotting my, my blind spots, you know? So, you know, on your, 
your your uh the sheet that you know we get from people when they come on the show it you're described as the female jerry Maguire. now for those who have not seen the movie jerry Maguire, it's about a a sports agent right yeah and he is known as the iconic three on the enneagram did you know that part I didn't know Jerry Maguire. Oh, Tom Cruise. You mean yes. is, is, a, is a three a uh, in that movie? Interesting. In that movie, he portrays a three. In fact, if you go on any, wow. any you go on any Enneagram site and you say, please tell me a movie character who's an Enneagram three. Jerry Maguire comes up almost every time. You're kidding. That's incredible. He is the consummate three. <laughs> wow. Isn't that amazing? Yes, that is. It's kind of freaky, but yes, that is that's that's incredible. So for you as a sports agent and doing what you're doing now, of course, uh, these wonderful workshops that you do, um, how does being a three help you? How did it help you? I mean, you did like $500 million worth of contracts with coaches and, you know, high-powered athletes. And I'm sure people that were really tricky in terms of negotiating. Sure. How did being a three really help you? Well, I think I, I could connect with lots of different kinds of people, right? I could sit in front of a division one basketball coach and, 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 and close that deal and, and help him understand how I could support him in a, in a window of time as a coach. I could sit in front of an 18 year old draft kid that was coming out, you know, of college that was going to be a number one pick and, and connect with him and then step over to the mother who's, uh, you know, uh, this child's mother who's now watching the world want a piece of her son and, and empathize with her and understand what that felt like, I think for her and connect. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a 24 seven world. Mm. And so hard work and, um, helping peak performers deliver was, and is so intriguing and fun for me. Mm. Right. So it was never a, it never felt like a burden. I think some people would think, oh, you know, you never, you're, I was always on the phone. I was always going. Um, but there was times, you know, where, where there was moments where I saw, uh, you know, where some of the, the sort of the things that come up in the Enneagram. I mean, I, I, I wrote about this in a, in a recent book. I, I'll never forget. I was sitting at lunch with my mom and dad, you know, who uh, that'd be fun to talk about, right? Like, why am I a three and how does that all bubble up? But I, you know, they'd flown down to Atlanta to come and see me for a couple days. We're sitting at lunch. They had just arrived and my phone rang the whole lunch. I mean, one athlete after another needing something traded, released, hired, fired. I mean, it was, we had 300 athletes in a team of agents. So it was all these lives that were changing all the time. And I took every single call. I mean, every single call, I was probably mid to late twenties and I could tell my parents were proud of me, but at the same time, they were kind of disgusted, mm. right? Like they had drove and come all the way down to Atlanta to be with me and I couldn't take an hour and just stop, right? So there's moments like that where uh, those were moments of self-reflection where I went, God, this is an asset, right? At some level, but, but it can be a liability if you don't know how to slow down and stop mm. too. Yeah, I think every number, by the way, has an there's a sort of a compulsive, addictive quality uh, to their way of being in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it becomes very difficult to, when you're dealing with compulsions, to stop them, right? It's almost like if you, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but imagine if you were an alcoholic and your parents came all that way and you couldn't stop drinking through lunch. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. Which is what yeah. would, which is what would happen with somebody that was an active alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. as that was mm -hmm. happening, 
was there a part of you what almost like a second party watching this thing happening at the table were you like going oh my gosh i'm out of control or i i feel so bad or i don't you know why did you feel in that moment you know i thought they've got to be so proud of me i mean look at look at you know i've come down to this big city i've landed i've 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 sort of you know i'm tracking nicely in this thing that i wanted to go do but it was only later, I think, as I got older and I reflected on knowing myself better and reflected on moments like this in my life where I saw the liabilities of of this go-go mindset, right, of this achieve mindset. Um, and I have tried to really shift to, you know, chasing fulfillment more than achievement, which I think are two very different things. And for me, I've always got to work on making sure I'm aligning with the things that are fulfilling versus that are just achieving. And I remember I had a, I think it was one of the uh, facilitators from YPO, you know, those, those sort of those productivity um, resources in the world aren't always actually good for me. Right. Because they just, they just, they just continue to hype up Mm. what I already, uh, you know, uh, and and maybe too good at at some level. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a really great point. And Enneagram threes who are listening to me right now, I want you to really listen to that wisdom because uh, we live in a world uh, that where now productivity is, Mm. uh, you know, a a huge emphasis in the lives of of lots of people. And as Mike Hyatt, who's been on the show as an Enneagram three and a productivity guru will tell you, the point of productivity isn't to get more done. It's actually to get more done efficiently. So you have more margin to do the things that, you know, mm-hmm. will probably be uh, more life-giving and make you a more whole person. But I don't think the vast majority of people who are into productivity, particularly threes, see it, uh, see productivity mm-hmm. as being about how do I create margins to be more human? It's more like, how do I use these tools to just keep crushing it? Exactly. And so, I, exactly, and I have to be so intentional about what you just said that, that, that Michael preaches, right. Which is just use these as a way to get more space in your life. Um, I have to be pretty intentional about, about that. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, it's, it's like a Herculean effort for threes to actually kind of go about doing that, you know? All right. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to something you said earlier. Um, you know, about mom and dad and family and mm-hmm, how, how do we mm-hmm. become a three? I mean, part of it's just temperament and disposition. You were born sure. with with a lot of the kind of qualities and essential nature that would make you a three. But there are obviously environmental reasons that you became a three. Tell me about your life growing up and what you think contributed to your becoming a three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, a couple, I mean, I grew up with two incredible parents. My dad was a pharmaceutical sales rep um, and, you know, would leave the house at five o'clock in the morning to get to the doctor's offices early, but he would be done by two or three. So I would spend, I spent a lot of time with my dad. I mean, he was home when I got home from school oftentimes. My mom was a speech therapist uh, for the public schools for almost 30 years and just very, uh, a, a remarkable woman, a leader in our community, um, and the most loving, incredible parents, Ian, candidly, uh, in the world. I mean, I wake up every day and try to be the kind of mom my mom was for my brothers and I. And I think I married a man very similar to my dad. Um, so m- my parents, now my dad's 82, my mom's 70, 77. And we talk every day, sometimes a couple times a day. Very, very incredible family. So 
I mean, I'm so grateful for my mom and dad. It was just a very solid, safe upbringing in Michigan, sort of there, that Midwestern, uh, I think, you know, value system. Um, and then I had twin brothers that were five years older than me who uh, are both now airline pilots um, and, you know, treated me a whole lot more like a little brother than a little sister, right? So I think I was probably at some level always trying to keep up. And so there's moments that I reflect on, right? Like, I played tennis at Michigan State, and, and sometimes people will ask, how did you get into tennis? And I remember going up in northern Michigan one time, and we we were playing tennis. And my parents said, look, you, you, you can't really play, so why don't you just be the ball girl? You can get all the balls and, you know, hand them to the server. And Because <laughs> my brothers and my parents made an even doubles team. And I remember at the end of the, the, the match, and I still drive by those courts and see them, I looked at, at all of them at the end of the match, and I said, hey, I just want to gotta let you guys all know that it won't be long before I'm beating every single one of you. (laughs) (laughs) And that came true, didn't it? And like four years later, I'll never forget beating my brother for the first time. And I mean, he was horrified. I mean, it was, it was, but it was a wonderful moment, right? Yeah. For me. Oh, for sure. So there, so that, so there was, you know, I think that I was probably at some level striving to keep up with two brothers, um, you know, and then there were the kind of parents, I, I remember a moment when I came home from school one day and I said to my mom, I said, mom, you're not going to believe it. You know, and I was an average student. I had to work hard in school and I came home and I said, mom, I got an A minus on this biology test and you won't believe it. There was only three other people that got an A. So I was like fourth highest, right? And I'm so pumped. And she said, honey, that is awesome. And she said, what do you think the people that got an A did? Hmm. You know, and she was not, I mean, she was like, that's awesome. But she was just like, I just wonder what they did differently. Right. So I don't know if things like that, and she said it with love and, and, but those are the things that always kept me thinking, huh, maybe I shouldn't be excited about my A minus because three people got an A and why couldn't I be one of those three? Mm. So I think, uh, there was moments, you know, like that. And, and it was always said with love and no intention that ever make me feel like it wasn't enough. But I think that stuff probably motivated me at some level. Mm. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, as children, we pick up real and perceived messages in the environment, you know, uh, some are implicit, some are explicit, right? Some are spoken, some are not. And and little mm-hmm. kids are super smart, man. They pick up on body language, uh, facial expressions, and whether they're reading them correctly or not, they're reading mm-hmm. them. And so mm-hmm. I think the message kids uh, who are threes get as a little person is it's it's not okay. Actually, here's this is a little complicated, but it's important. It's not okay to have your your own feelings or even your own identity. Now, this is this is actually a really important thing for threes to understand. Mm. Um, threes sometimes pick up in the environment that uh, who I am uh, does not entirely conform to the person the uh, important people in my life want me to be. They may want me to be a better student than I can be. They want me to be uh, this or that. And I, some, some threes would say, I had to abandon the person I really was in order to become mm-hmm. the person the important people in my life wanted me to become in order to get my needs met and to please them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for the three, it would be the achiever. I have to become someone who wins all the time and never fails. 
Mm-hmm. Now, as I was saying that, you, you, your face got a little more serious. Uh, you, you look like you were thinking real hard, but but maybe even feeling a little bit of, of that. What what was coming up for you when I said that? I I think that I am. I really do think I'm preconditioned pretty strongly to be a three. Um, because even when I was young and my dad would watch Zig Ziglar tapes and Brian Tracy, you know, all that stuff was laying around our house cause he was in sales. And so I would at a young age go grab Zig Ziglar swim with the sharks, you know? So I think I was strongly preconditioned candidly to be that way. Um, I can confidently, I always felt loved and enough. Uh, I, I really did. I think, you know, it's hard for me to ever think that anything my parents did was wrong because mm. they were so amazing. Right. So I think my serious face was more of how much was preconditioned, how much was environmental. Yeah. Um, and at some level, I think the environment served me, uh, in so many ways. I think at some level though, uh, to, to, to one of my gaps, right. Which is not as emotional, right. You sort of park your feelings and just keep going. I think I grew up in a home where we where where we generally, you know, kind of get over it, keep going. Right. right. I mean, if you were really upset or sad, I mean, they would empathize. I remember I came home from a tennis match that I should have won. And I was the only person on the team that lost. I was playing for Michigan state and I laid on my parents' bed because I was just mortified, um, that I lost. And I cried, you know, and my dad was right there with me, rubbing my back and reassuring me that, that you can do it and you'll be fine. And we love you. and We're proud of you and just do your best. And that's enough. And um, so they didn't. I felt like they did a nice job of that. But if I would have cried the next day and the next day and the next day, that that level of empathy would have been gone. Right. It would have been like, OK, we had our moment. Get going, girl. Mm. Get over yeah. So I, you know, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm always careful with this because I think the danger is as you do Enneagram work and, and, and the Enneagram isn't just about identifying your type and then figuring out, you know, it's, it, there's a whole growth path that's involved, right? It gives you a transformational mm. growth path. Like, how did I get here? How do I deal with what's best about my type? And how do I face what's the dark shadow side of my type? And I think part of the journey is is sort of reflecting back and thinking without shaming or blaming parents or coaches or teachers or peers or culture. All of these things have tremendous power in our lives. And and, mm -hmm. and we have to face it. We live in a broken world where mistakes get made. No parent is perfect. Sure. You know what I mean? No sure. parent is perfect. Yeah, sure. And so it's not it's not because you want to blame anybody. It's just to kind of reflect as part of the journey to think, how did I get here? You know, mm -hmm. without having to resent anybody or feel like you failed me. It's just like, all right, let me just do an inventory and, and figure out how did I get here? Because that's going to be part of the journey of becoming more, mm -hmm. becoming more whole, you know? Mm -hmm. um, sure. You know, my, sure. my Kyat was on the show and he tells a story and I've heard him tell it many times. So I'm not telling this out of school uh, because he's actually told it on our show. Which is he remembers a time when his dad, who at the time was, uh, you know, struggling with an addiction, uh, he uh, fell down uh, outside their house when their friends, they, they had come home with some friends and dad was uh, uh, 
uh, intoxicated and fell down uh, in front of all their friends. And Mike said in that moment, he was a young boy, uh, I think, or, you know, maybe early teens or something like that. He said to himself, I will never, ever be like my dad, like in that such in that way, you know, I'm going to be, wow. I'm going to be a success. I, I am going to be. So you see, you know, and Mike loves, yeah. I've met Mike's dad, great guy. Mike uh, and, and is doing, you know, he's sober now and doing great. Uh, but, but you, there are these moments in life where yeah. other, we make promises, we make promises mm-hmm. inside. And, 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 and I think for a lot of people, a, a question I would ask each type would be, what promise did you make as a little person to yourself that you have tried to keep, but maybe is no longer serving you uh, as an adult? What, what do you think your promise was? Um, boy, that's so interesting. Uh, it's probably a few things. I, I think, uh, you know, w- one of them could be, and I'm talking out loud, but one of them could be, you know, my mom was always, you, you have to ensure, honey, as you grow up and you get married and things like that, that you can always support yourself. Mm. That, that was a message that you, you know, you always, it's fine. You know, obviously I, I hope you fall in love and you get married and you have a family, but it's always important, honey, to know that you can, you can provide and support yourself. And that probably, uh, it has served me very, very well, but there are times when I, I need to, you know, let Fred lead my husband, you know what I mean? And allow, and allow that to happen at times. It doesn't mean that you always have to, um, be so independent. It's okay to be dependent. So that's probably something that I always work on, mm. or it is something that I work on is making sure that I know how to be dependent at times, that that's okay, uh, to, to do, um, because we need each other, right? And and we need other people in the world for sure to help us. So so probably that strive for independence, um, for being able to support and stand on yourself. And that the interesting thing is that really came from my grandmother to my mom and from my mom to me. It's really interesting. We we actually talk about it as a family now. because mm. uh, my grandmother, you know, was born in the early nineteen hundreds, but you know, she was a, you know, PE teacher. Right. And she was born in the early 1900s and she was a female PE teacher. Right. That's pretty unique. Right. So that, that would be one thing. What, what, you know, what else? So the sort of the question was, what what were the things that I thought I needed to do? Maybe that I don't necessarily need to hold on to anymore. Yeah. Maybe I put it this way: What vows did you make to yourself uh, that, you know, I will do this? And, and, maybe, yeah. and maybe it served you to a point, but maybe you know, now it's something to let go of or to lean mm-hmm. or to lean on less. I would say, uh, that one would be to never disappoint my parents. Okay. I think that one of the things as a kid, and, and I think this was true for particularly one of my brothers, we, we, we never want, I never, I still don't ever want to disappoint them. You know, I always want to make them proud. So that, that would probably be, something that I, I have made them proud, right? Like I can let go of that. Uh, they're very proud of, of me. And so I don't need to keep feeling like I've got to achieve anything to make them feel proud of me. Mm. They say it to me. It's evident that they're proud of me. So that's probably something. 
you know, and not disappointing them. It, it was funny when I was at Michigan State, I've, I've told this story before, but it was interesting. I, I came, I went to Michigan State and I joined a sorority. And I was having great fun. I, you know, I was playing really good tennis and, uh, and I was going to class periodically. Right. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mom one day says to me, gal, honey, it seems like you're having a great time. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you got tennis, you got your sorority, uh, and you're having a lot of fun. It seems like, honey, just make sure, you know, you can't be really great at everything at once. And it was an interesting statement. She goes, you, you it's just hard to be amazing at all three of these things at the same time, hmm. but you're giving it a heck of a shot, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I said, no, mom, I got this. I got this. And she said, um, and, and I got my report card for a fall term freshman year and I got a 1.8 <laughs> and I was, I couldn't go active in my sorority. I was 0.01, which is just ridiculous of being ineligible to play tennis, which would have really been incredibly uh, devastating for me. And I came home and, and at that point, my report card, you know, this is back then when they would mail it to the house and it got to my parents' house and I opened, I opened it up and I saw it and I couldn't believe it. And you know, my mom just kind of looked at me and she really wasn't upset. She just said, you can do better than this, honey. I know you can. And I think about that and I'm still so grateful because they did a couple things that I've, I'm so glad they did. Number one, they, they just said that we believe in you and you can do better. You know, they didn't pull me out of school and say, you, you can't handle all of this. You're going to go to, you're going to do something. They let me figure it out. And that was kind of all she said. I mean, she didn't say you're going to need to move home. She didn't say you can't rush your sorority. You can't handle all these things. She just said you can do better than this. Mm. And I four pointed six terms in a row after that mm. and, and got my, you know, I graduated with high honors. So I say that only because, um, I never wanted to disappoint them. I think that was a big part of that drove me enough, right? They didn't need to do anything else because I had already felt like I disappointed them. So all I wanted to do was fix that. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What were you afraid was going to happen if you disappointed them? Uh, such a great question. What was I afraid would happen if I disappointed them? Um, maybe that they wouldn't be proud of me. Maybe that. Um, and then what? And th and then what would happen? They wouldn't be proud of me. Uh, I think I know where you're going, and it it wouldn't be that they wouldn't love me because they right. loved me unconditionally. I know that sure. for a fact, and I believe that. I, I'm may, just maybe, wondering what may, what was behind. There's yeah, a lot. There's a lot of energy I, I in wonder, this. I wonder if it was that they would be more proud of my brothers than me. Mm. And I think I was always trying to keep up with my brothers. Um, so I wonder if I worried, would they be more proud of them than me? And because we even to this day sometimes joke and I'm like, you know, I'm mom and dad's favorite, right? I mean, you know that, right? I'll say that to my brothers. Right, right. <laughs> we joke about that. And so I would say that they would be proud of me would probably be the biggest thing. I think that's the most important probably thing to me that they're mm -hmm. proud of me. Yeah, one. And I, oh, sorry, sorry. Now I, yeah, no, and now I, I know they are, and I feel like I have relaxed on that a bit. You know, I think that that most of most of us, but I think particularly through threes, there's almost a uh, an unacknowledged or unconscious scarcity mindset. Like, 
like there's only going to be so much pride or delight <laughs> or love. It's like to go around. And so I've really got to fight for it. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And so I wonder if that was a dynamic in there. It's like, man, there's only so much to go around. And so I, I want to make sure that, you know, uh, I, you know, I get, I get what I need as a human being. Wow. Yeah. That that's interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that was part of it. I mean, uh, you know, they both worked. they were busy. Um, you know, my mom was the president of the junior league. I mean, so, you know, there was a, I mean, they were busy, right. right? They weren't just sort of sitting around to, to wait to serve us for sure. Or yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder if, you know, part of the journey for you and for other threes is to kind of reflect on what were some of the uh, unconscious beliefs that were floating around in my life, whether, whether they were communicated explicitly or implicitly on purpose, or it was done by accident, right? Um, mm -hmm. What kinds of things that I pick up that were beliefs that, that continue to run like in the background, like, like inside, yeah. inside the operating system without me mm -hmm. knowing it, that continue to drive ways of thinking, acting and feeling that really are not as they're not that healthy anymore. Well, yeah, that's, I love the way you asked that question, Ian, cause it's, it really gets deep into the root of the, the, the clarity, right? I mean, as much as I've read the Enneagram, taken it, whatever, uh, you just this last 15 minutes, right, of understanding what are those beliefs that aren't serving you. It's a really interesting way to think about it because I thought of two more. Okay, bring them on. <laughs> One of them is multitasking, mm. which I know for threes is, but, you know, I grew up where my mom in particular um, was always being efficient. I mean, she was emptying the dishwasher while she was talking on the phone. You know, she would sit in cars on road trips and, you know, address her Christmas cards, right? She'd get all hundred of them, 200 of them addressed. I mean, she would never, ever think to just sit in the car on a drive for three hours and just chill and talk to my dad. Mm. She was going to, she was going to do things. And so she was always multitasking. And that was something that thankfully I have, I think I'm a recovering multitasker addict person mm -hmm. in the sense that I, I've realized how draining that can be the mistakes that I make when I do that. Um, and, and so I think I've worked, I've worked hard on trying not to do that so much, mm -hmm. uh, for so many reasons, because I believe being present with people matters so much. And I think people can tell when we're really there or not. And when we're multitasking, we're probably compromising our ability to connect, mm -hmm. um, with other people, um, which is important. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a belief that runs underneath that, right? And here it is for threes, okay? Okay, And yeah. this is something that threes, uh, again, it's a growth path thing for threes. Threes have to have, uh, to learn, I think, to trust that if they just stop working uh, and stop moving, that everything's going to get taken care of. Don't worry. It's like, it's like <laughs> the three doesn't seem to trust that if they stop working, that that all the stuff that needs to get done is going to get done. Mm -hmm. And just to take a breath, yeah. you know, just, take but a if breath. you stop working, how is it going to get done? <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah. I mean, the things don't just happen. No, they don't. But, but three seem to think that it's all on them. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like, like doing, sure. doing, 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 doing. And if I stop, 
you know, obviously there, there is stuff to get done, but, but threes take it to a whole other place sometimes. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, oh, yeah. it's all on me. It's all on me. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and they actually do have the mindset of, well, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, you are human. You know what I mean? Like right. nobody sure. can get to it all. Right. Sure. So I do, Absolutely. I do think that's part of the, the journey uh, for for three. So we've been talking a lot about what maybe the word that I would use is value. Where does for you now and maybe let's compare it. You at 25. Now you at 48. Where does your value come from? My value comes from connection with the people that matter most to me. Okay. To, to connection with my family, uh, my, my immediate, my, my husband and my children, um, my parents, my brothers, uh, my friends, um, that, that's, that's the, the, the most important thing mm. to me is feeling connected and, to, to them. And what was it at 25? Um, I would say it was probably, it was that, but it was equally around achievement. Mm. I would say those two were running a tight race, <laughs> right? Right. That it was incredibly important to keep achieving and to keep uh, growing as a, as a career uh, woman and, and continuing to evolve and, and, and have more and more, um, you know, success as a businesswoman. Those were probably running a tight. And I feel like now I'm more, I'm sort of, I feel comfortable with where I am from a career perspective mm-hmm. and the trajectory that that's on. Um, so, yeah. Uh, wh- she said she thought of two more things. One was multitasking. Oh, so one, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One was look at Anthony being <laughs> all like on top of his game. I, so, I was actually kind of testing you, Ian, to see if you remember the other. <laughs> That's why Anthony's That's what I'm here, here. for. <laughs> <laughs> what was the other? What was the other? We were talking about beliefs, like unconscious beliefs. So, so we were talking about how multitasking, you know, maybe underneath that is this belief, like it's all on me, man. Right. I gotta, you know, I gotta be doing everything at once. So, what was the other one? You know, and, and, and again, I don't know if this is a bad thing or a good thing, but, um, was, uh, an environment I grew up in where you, if you said you were going to do something, you did it. Mm. I mean, you didn't, you didn't say, you know, I- I'm going to empty the dishwasher mom and not do it. You didn't say I'll be home at 10 and not be home at 10. I mean, if you said and verbalized or promised something you were going to do, you did it. So, you know, for me now, that's, w- w- that gets in my way sometimes with people who say they're going to do something and don't do it, it, it it's, it's a real pet peeve of mine. Mm. And I probably could use more grace there, mm. more understanding, uh, more, more empathy around, uh, around that. But uh, yeah, that was a, that's a belief mm. for sure. So here's a question I frequently ask uh, people, but definitely with threes. Tell me about a time when you failed and how you recovered. Wow. Um, you know, I mean, I failed, you know, with my 1.8 and, and I just get right to work. Mm-hmm. I just get right to work and fix it. Right. So I four pointed six or seven terms in a row, you know, I lost that match that I told you about that I shouldn't have lost. And then I think I went on like an eight, eight match winning streak or something. Um, you know, if I was recruiting an athlete as I got older in my career and I lost a player, um, you know, I had a lot of other guys in the hopper that I was recruiting and I would just get right back to work. I sort of, um, at any time I have failed, which is so many times, um, I'm a huge proponent of, of that 
you've got to flip it and recover. I think you need to take a minute and understand what you did wrong. Um, I think you need to own it, but I, I don't think you can sit and, and sorrow in it. I think you've got to keep moving forward and, 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 and solve for, you know, what does a win look like in, 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 in another way, maybe. Mm. So we're coming to the end of our time and, and I, I just want to know, I know that you're, you know, your Enneagram journey is, you know, in sort of its first stages. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you perceive at this time, in this moment, is where you need to grow as a human being? I, I think probably the biggest thing is learning how to relax, mm-hmm. you know, learning how to enjoy uh, and, and appreciate some of the things that, that I've been able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't ever really spend a lot of time in the rearview mirror. Right. I mean, I remember I was on an airplane recently with a gentleman and I was talking to him and he just kept asking questions. And he was like, wow, you know, you need to just chill Mm. and like, think about what you've done. I mean, you, you should. So I, I probably, I, I think I need to learn how to, you know, slow down and relax to take a, you know, every other Friday and play golf, right. To be more intentional about things like that. That's the hardest thing for me to do is to turn it off. Mm. I, I mean, I remember a friend just reminded me of this. I went to a movie when our daughters were young. They wanted to go to a movie and I brought my laptop and just sat so I could knock some things out in the movie. I mean, I have to learn how to not do things like that. Man, girl, you are a three. <laughs> <laughs> Man, when people ask me, okay, do you have a do you have a do you have an episode of typology that sort of shows the quintessential three? I'll be, oh yeah, baby, yes. I got it, right? I got it. You make Mike Hyatt look like an underachiever, man. Right. That's just that's right. Wait, I can't wait to tell him. It's going to drive him nuts. <laughs> oh, Holy awesome. smoke! All right, so I, one of the things I, I always want to encourage threes on, and it's hard for him to hear it, uh, which is, you know, one of the messages uh, or beliefs that threes pick up is uh, the world doesn't love people uh, for who they yeah. are so much as for what they accomplish and do in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's part of the journey for you. What do you think? Probably. I mean, I'm sure it is if it is for most. I mean, uh, you know, that that is uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that's something I can I can work on. Um, and I'm thankful because I married someone who who isn't isn't attached to what I do. Never was even when I was an agent and we would do incredible things that most guys that I would have been dating would have thought that were so cool. And he thought they were fun, but he was really more connected to, to me. Mm. So, um, I'm in an, I mean, I guess my point is I'm in a good environment to, uh, <laughs> to work on that. Mm. So here's the thing I want to say before I jump into my last question, I want to have you back on. If you do a lot of Enneagram work in the next six to 12 months, I want to have you back on and find out what the journey has been like for you. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, oh, man. I just, I can't wait. But how wait. about we do it in three months, man? I mean, why do we, no, I'm <laughs> 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 We can get it done. We can get it done. Why are we waiting so long? I mean, let's do Molly, this. Molly, if you sneak a few Enneagram books in with you to the next couple of movies you watch, I think we could squeeze yeah. it in in three months. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. I'm a little, in fact, that leads me into my last question. You have a new book coming out and it's, it's called energy clock, three simple steps to create a life full of energy and live your best every day. Tell us about that book. Uh, so, you know, it's all about how I think a lot of times, and, and this is probably, I mean, this is interesting as part of this conversation, but a lot of times, you know, one of the things that I always have worked on is like, what are you chasing, right? I mean, what are we all really chasing? And is it aligned with our values and to, and to what matters most um, to us? And so it's a book about how can we be more intentional about managing our energy in, in the sense of focusing on the things that, that matter most to us and not allowing ourselves in a world where we're so, um, you know, we live by our calendar series reminding us where to go and when. Uh, you know, we're operating, attempting to operate with incredible efficiencies all the time. Um, I think that that all of those things are fine, except it's, it's so important to ensure that we take time to make sure that we have the kind of energy we need to serve the people around us who matter most. I mean, and I and I talk about it when I keynote, right? Like, can we can we lead if we don't have energy, right? Can we solve problems if we don't have enough energy? And and so it's it's. It's. I think it's going to be one of my best books ever. I hope it. I hope it helps a lot of people. I mean, that was why I wrote it because it was a journey that for me I went on myself, and tried to get really a lot more intentional about where I put my energy, ensuring it aligns with with my value, with what matters most to me, not just operating based on 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 sort of time based things. Mm, sounds pretty great. I I'm a, I'm assuming now it's it's available for pre order on on Amazon. Yes. Yes, it's on Amazon and available for pre-order. Absolutely. So everybody get on there and, and check Let's out. Let's do this. Yeah, Energy Clock, three simple steps to create a life full of energy and live your best every day. And of course, you've got uh, this cool podcast that I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on Yeah. called Game Changes with Molly Fletcher. Quickly tell folks what that's about. It's a podcast about people that are that are game changers, right? That are doing things in a way maybe that's different than other people have before. People that can add insight and value to our lives. We've had incredible people like you, Ian. We've had best-selling authors like Seth Godin and Angela Duckworth and um, Adam Grant. And we've had athletes and coaches like John Smoltz and Davo Sweeney and Gino Ariyama. So it's, uh, as you know, in the work that you do, it is, it is one of my favorite things. I mean, to have the opportunity to talk to such incredible people and then share those conversations with other people so that it helps them. Uh, it's, it's just awesome. Mm. Okay, everybody, this has been Molly Fletcher, <laughs> author of the upcoming book, Energy Clock, Three Simple Steps to Create a Life Full of Energy and Live Your Best Every Day. She's the host of the podcast Game Changes with Molly Fletcher. Molly, it's been a delight to have you on. It's, it's been great fun, and I'm, I'm looking forward to round two. I've got some work to do. You do, and I'm trusting that you're going to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Thanks, Molly. <laughs> Thank you. And now, my good friends, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken.